Welcome to One Inch Prosperity Podcast. I'm going to say I took a hiatus over the summer and I'm back with the best possible um, guest, um, the most popular guest that we've had in the history of this illustrious podcast, and that is Joe Boyle. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for being back. Hi, Kirstie. It's good to be with you. So many people have listen to your podcast, listen to your episode um, and told me how much they loved it and how inspiring you were. And then I like, I'll just be on Facebook or something. And I'll be like, how, are, how are these two people connected? Like I, how is this random friend of mine from California suddenly acting like they know Joe? And then I'm like, Oh, it's the podcast. And you guys are like absolute besties. And I'm like, this is nice. I love that. So, yeah, you made quite an impact. Um, I still remember the first conversation I had with you and just coming home and saying to my husband, that was just so, I used a word that I very rarely use. Um, and I'm now, it's like, it's escaping me. But I said, I think I said, I feel sanctified. It just felt, it was the most wonderful experience. Um, and I am ever grateful, um, that we got to know each other because over the years we've continued to be friends. I think that was sort of like our major introduction. Yeah. Yeah, it sure was. Yeah. And I realized just what a special guy you were and, and how down to earth you are and how fun you are and how I can always talk to you about anything without, um, feeling judged, even though you're such a good guy. Um, and, you know, I just never feel like you're going to be like, well, you're kind of mean. That That's a little bit out of pocket. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm just so over things or just at my worst and being so unkind. Oh, well, I, I have these unholy voices in my head. And like uh, this this morning, I, I, I went to the grocery and I, I saw uh, one of my state legislatures in line and uh Oh, the thoughts through my head. Yeah, oh. I know. Like, I feel like we all have the thoughts over that particular person. All right, one or both um, that I'm assuming um, you would see at a local grocery store. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like um, the 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 benevolent universe has protected me from those encounters because they happen, <laughs> quite, they happen quite frequently to people I know. And I'm always like, I'm always very impressed by their restraint. But um, I, I was just shocked the encounter didn't happen in the uh, uh, in the city where this person said that she lived for a while uh, instead of here. It was shocking. yeah, isn't that fascinating? <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> Somehow this 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 particular individual works her way into a lot of my podcasts. That's very strange and interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, but anyway, we are mutually distressed by. <laughs> politics in this country but apart from but apart from that um i think we've just you know found that we are neither of us are much for small talk we like to um talk about things that matter um or that are a little bit more sort of i don't know sometimes people i i just i just don't understand folk who who are all about the small talk and i don't think you are and i wonder if that's because of your diagnosis or if you just your personality um but we always kind of get into like like so 
Let's talk about the most profound things we can talk about. I know I haven't said anything to you for six months, but anyway, let's get down. <laughs> it's so funny because I, so like I do, uh, I, I, I'm not just a dabbler in the small talk. I'm a, uh, I like to think I'm conversant in small talk a lot oh, of times. I'm, a, I'm uh, appallingly bad at it and always have been. Yeah, for me, it's uh sports which i have an interest in and and, All right, and right. i literally do have a lot of interest in the weather i am i'm a big weather guy and, right. and so like a surface level weather discussion is not something i'm interested in but deep discussions of the weather let's go okay so that's <laughs> that's a nice well-rounded kind of person that you can take an you can take a an interest that and by the way, weather is not going to remain a small talk topic. The oh, weather is no. Becoming, <laughs> the weather is becoming our exis- most deep and existential kind of conversation. Oh, right. Without question. Yeah. It's, it's so alarming. But anyway, I was thinking about how I looked up when our last episode was. It was May 8th, 2018. And I'm like, that's not exactly before times. Yeah. In terms of. We had a lunatic in office already, but we hadn't been afflicted by the COVID that sort of like reframed our entire view of the world and everybody sure. in it. Um, but you had been struggling with cancer at that point for how long? You'd been fighting cancer for like years already, right? Yeah, since uh, uh, March of 2011. Yeah, so you were a major veteran. And to recap for anybody who didn't, I listened to the first episode, which I highly recommend. Um, I sort of got to know Joe when I heard that he was running his first marathon um, in the depths of an Ohio winter. It was a very snowy February day, freezing, and just there was snow everywhere. And he, you were doing that um, because you had, received sort of like an update on your diagnosis and it didn't look like you had a lot of hope in doing it after um, right. treatment that you were anticipating getting or something like that? Yeah, yeah. There, uh, so I, I had started on a, uh, a, or I was about to start on a trial of a new, what was then a new immunotherapy drug, which is now the uh, industry standard. Mm, um, and, and I was told that there was a really good chance I'd get this uh, hand foot syndrome which would uh, create blistering on my hands and feet. So that was why we, uh, that was why we pulled the trigger on the uh, marathon in the middle of the winter, because that was when we were going to do it. And it was um, not a kind February day. Occasionally there can oh, be. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, but it was as, as gross a day as oh. anyone can imagine. Oh. Well, I, it, I don't want to retread too much territory from the last podcast. No, go ahead. Like, uh, I, the thing I'll always remember is that the night before it was like for a brief and shining moment, it was really nice. It was like high thirties, low forties, which for February in Northwest Ohio, you'll, you'll take any day of the week, twice on Sunday. And then it started raining and it rained and rained and rained and rained. And then the temperature dropped down to 12 degrees. Oh, and And then it became all of that ice. And there was a sheet of ice under the four inches of snow that then so came disgusting. down. Disgusting! That is despicable. It was awful. How it was, dare it! I everything personally... terrible about a Northwest Ohio winter. <laughs> all all in twenty four hours. Yeah. What a horrible thing to do, Ohio! Gosh. And so, um, 
I heard that this was happening. And as a runner, I'm like, yo, you guys do not even know what he is taking on. A marathon on its face is like a massive undertaking. Then this man is like, has cancer and is now taking one under these circumstances. And it was an unofficial marathon. You were doing it with a group of friends. Right. And so I gathered my uh, congregation from my church um, and persuaded them to come and stand outside and cheer you on. Which, as I remember, was pretty much an act of God for you, too. It like, really was. Getting everybody they, to, to go out. Sickness <laughs> for their routines, the Mormons. They, they are for sure. They were not having it. Because, honestly, you know, I don't know if we mentioned this in the last podcast, but, like, um, activities such as running or sports and stuff are frowned upon by the the sort of more old school um, to, I mean, we didn't let our kids do sports on Sundays. So sure. the sa- Sabbath day breaking that you were doing already <laughs> was, was already was a lot, but for some reason, um, enough people were willing to overlook it and tap into their better selves and stand outside. And, and I think it was a great experience for them to see you going by, like everybody seemed really like gratified that they had done it in the end. Oh. So, um, and you were so, so gracious about that. And then we became friends um, and we had our podcast and I've talked ever since. So I'm wondering since that time, um, what's, you know, what was the prognosis cancer wise? How were you doing and how are you doing today? I know there've been countless ups and downs. Like It's really interesting. You said that was spring, summer of 18 was the last time we, we did yeah. a podcast. Yeah. So you and you had also said that that wasn't necessarily the before times, but um, that's well, absolutely <laughs> for me it was yeah. um, because my dad died that October and I had mm-hmm. uh, it, it was really it was a turning point with my cancer that October um, and then kind of uh, you know processing with uh, processing the grief of, of losing a parent. So I I very much. Uh, if, if I'm periodizing my life, I, mm. I definitely look at that as uh, you caught me at the end of one period and, uh, and kind of the beginning of the period I've been in since. Um, so, yeah, that uh, it would have been late that summer, early that fall. Um, my doctors were noting um, kind of a a notable growth of the, the cancer in my lungs. And I had, uh, I'd started coughing up blood. Uh, it would have been about that September. I had a couple instances of coughing up blood. And, um, so my, my doctor, uh, decided that we were going to do some radiation to address that. And, uh, I, I was, I was scheduled to go out, uh, to clinic for my, um, kind of intake at radiation, the radiation planning. Um, and that was going to be on a Friday. And then that Thursday night, uh, my, my dad passed away suddenly at home. Oh and I did not realize so, that timing. Oh yeah. And wow. And so I went from, uh, uh, li- literally, I learned my dad died about seven o'clock at night. And um, by seven the next morning, I was on the road to Cleveland to start this radiation and oh, just man. kind of shell shocked. And um, wow. And so then the radiation started the day after we buried my father uh, was the first dose of radiation. 
and that went on for about a week. And and uh, you know, it was it was just before uh, just before the holidays. It was just before Thanksgiving. Um, and no. I kind of oh, I kind whammy. I I remember like almost nothing about that. Yeah. That winter, um, that whole winter of, of 1819 is kind of lost to me. Yeah, um, yeah. And it, it's not until maybe oh, the spring of 19 that I kind of start remembering stuff again. And uh, at, uh, concurrently with that, I was I was starting on a new uh, new targeted therapy drug, um, which uh, which had uh, enough gastrointestinal side effects that I learned where every restroom between my home and my school 20 miles away is, and I can rate every one of them. And if any of you need to know about fast food, hotel, uh, gas station bathrooms between Bowling Green and Toledo, I'm your guy. If Uh, you would put that together in a a guide, I think that would be a real service. So one of of my bestest buddies did the same thing in college. Uh, he, He rated... He raided every restroom on campus because he had been going through some stuff. And uh, yeah, he owns that territory, but I, uh, I, made, is, a, I made a claim on it. <laughs> that, is a, that is an unpleasant kind of territory to have to claim. I know only as a pregnant woman how familiar yeah. a person can get, but oy, that's rough. I mean, yeah. talk about your life just kind of like exploding in every regard. Well, yes, <laughs> that would be an apt description. Of <laughs> I mean, just on every level, it was exploding. Um, and yeah, the trauma, like leaving it, just the memory gaps that that kind of like cluster of trauma yeah. would leave. Um, apart from just kind of the medical, you know, just radiation, I'm sure has an effect on Oh yeah, on yeah. all sorts and, of brain cells and yep. things. So wow, yeah. So that so was, it really you know, was before times for you. Oh yeah, and 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 the fact is, you know, then I finally, I finally started coming out of that. I was on a, a ton of high dose steroids. Oh, I uh, remember through, that through oh. that summer, yeah. and my life was finally starting to calm down in the winter of 1920. Mm. Um, and then whammo, then came COVID. And not so fast, man. Get yeah. That back for us all. Yeah, because my, my steroids were up, so my immune system was down. And uh, and then shortly shortly after that, um, I had a metastasis to my lip, which was the first one of those they had ever seen. Um, so then I had surgery, then I had more drugs, and and that that first uh, that first year of COVID was was wicked with the with the cancer um, and through kinda... this all we must like we must emphasize that you are an inner city high school teacher um trying to support a family this is your job during right, a right. pandemic whilst you are fighting for your life with a suppressed immune system yeah yeah so much and, fun <laughs> and blessedly i my district is really forward thinking which i am eternally grateful for and um so we were remote obviously the the remainder of the 1920 school year um and then we were remote for now memory fails me again because of all the drugs but i believe we were remote for almost the entire first semester or the entire first semester uh and then came back on a a merge schedule in second semester with masking so i was uh 
just incredibly fortunate to be at a district that that took things seriously. You um, were, but then your kids were still here, and we were fighting right. tooth and nail. And I remember you being front and center, um, as I, you know, petitioned religiously this district to just take things seriously and at least do masking and whatever. Because I, I knew that, I knew you, and I knew your family, but I also thought if I know one like this, there are so many oh, others. Yeah. Whose yeah. lives are, you know, this is a, literally a life and death situation. Yes. And um, and I think we we met a lot in terms of our sense of community being rocked so drastically by the, yeah. the response to that. Yeah. So on top of your cancer, on top of the fear of catching COVID when you're so immune suppressed still mourning your dad, still dealing with the after effects of all of your treatments and the ongoing effects of them. Um, and then steroids. I mean, that's a whole nother situation. Right. I, I can barely be on steroids for like two days post-surgery without killing, you know, everything. Oh, yeah. So and I And you don't sleep. I remember that. Was yeah, that. I, had, I had that massive steroid dose. Yeah, um, that was brutal. It, in the lead up to COVID, like literally it was uh, right up to the doorstep of COVID. I was on, on high dose steroids. Um, then I, I had the surgery. Um, fast forward into the next, well, I guess, I guess I don't really want to fast forward past this at all. Um, because in that winter of 2021 going into the spring of 21, um, I lost, uh, I lost two, uh, two friends uh, who uh, I've recently learned, thanks to a, an excellent Twitter feed called Thanks Cancer, um, that these are my uh, my uh, uh, carcinoma homies or my carcinomies. Um, and and two, two friends, one who had the exact same cancer as I, um, and then another uh, very dear friend uh, who had a different cancer um, and ended up dying of COVID. Uh, oh. during during that time and it was it was just oh. one more uh, uh, as if I needed any more reminder of, of how deadly this was for for folks like me that was just just you know bam bam of those those hitting in that winter of 2021 um, and then it was uh, I, I kind of made it through the the spring of of uh, 21 Um my cancer was continuing to grow. I ended up on uh, uh, another drug, um, another targeted therapy drug that didn't seem to do much except, you know, make me make me not feel great. Um, and then in October of 21, uh, I should I should say in September of 21, uh, I started developing these weird little things uh, where. I would look at my left hand and it felt disassociated from my body. Like I, I go to pick up a pen and I'd be grabbing the wrong place on my desk Ooh. to get the pen. And like my brain was telling me you're not in the right place, but my hand would not go to the right place. Oh. And so that's happening in September. And yeah. a lot of people around me um, are telling me you're having a nervous breakdown right now. And so I tried to slow things down in life a little bit. And uh, then I'm driving out to Cleveland for 
a new tumor that had developed this time on my thumb. Uh, I was driving out there uh, in late October of 21 for this other cancer thing. And all of a sudden I can barely see the road. Like my whole body is disassociated from my brain. Um, So I, I pull over, um, I chill out for a little bit and then I decide I got to get to the nearest emergency room. And I, I turn around, I go back to, to East Toledo, uh, to the ER and, uh, they put me in stroke protocol right away. And, uh, the whole time I'm like, great, here's one more thing, a stroke on top of cancer. Um, they send me down for a CT and they come back with the results and they say, you have cancer in your brain. And that was, stop. Was your wife with you? You're just, you were alone. I was alone. I was alone. And, um, and she got, she got there, uh, later that, that, that afternoon. And I think I got the results that evening after she'd gone home. Um, and it was, it was, it was the craziest thing because part of me was petrified by the news that I had cancer in my brain. Um, but another part of me was like, well, at least it's not a stroke <laughs> because I, I know cancer. I mean, cancer been together for 10 know. years, you know, so, yeah. so, okay, it's cancer in the brain. Um, wow. That led to uh, gamma knife surgery on my brain and a new round of steroids. Um, that was when you had your fancy helmet. Was this the helmet? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's when they screwed the helmet into my head. That and, was... Uh, just looked so I was like come on oh they they had me on enough drugs that it was fine because (laughs) you had these like a a halo of nails screwed directly into your skull and I was like you know what enough I'm I I just don't think so this is unacceptable at this point I didn't even care until the next day it was when it came off and like the next morning when there wasn't that pressure on my head anymore that's that's when it started started to smart but when they had it on me <laughs> i didn't care smart. i love the way you put that i was so just i was <laughs> right right the you thing i was most upset country. about i couldn't i couldn't wear my glasses so i couldn't watch tv so i was all pissed off about that but but i yeah. have to add i have to interrupt you and add that through this all this man shows up and i know that you weren't in the best of spirits i mean on oh, our yeah. convers- in our private conversations you were taking strain but yeah. Um, this man rolls up with the following a week's worth of like spirit outfits. So the first day was like, we're doing what pajama day. And then there was inside out day and whatever he like, he, he festivized this. I just made up a word. He made it into a little festival. Didn't you also bring like a playlist from your students? I did the coolest thing. My students, um, before (laughs) I left. So I knew I was going to be in this gamut machine for like three hours and they, they told me that if I had a Spotify playlist, they could play my, my Spotify um, while I was in the machine. So I made it an extra credit thing for my students to create my playlist. And, oh, and it was they fantastic. Came through. They came through. They did. They and really they had did. like a reason for each song. Yes. Um, it was gorgeous. That really like was just, I was like, you know what? If you can take the shittiest thing that can happen to a person basically on top of 10,000 other shitty things and make it into a festival. Um, that's some special survival like well, skills. And, and that's all it is. That's all it is. Like, so, and I know we're going to kind of touch on this later, but you know, throughout, 
throughout my cancer journey, folks have kind of like come to expect, oh, you're so positive about things. And I don't, I don't think that's entirely accurate. We can, we can talk about that a little bit later, but it's, it really is just a survival mechanism. It's like, okay, I have to make this fun right now, or it's going to suck me down into the abyss. I have to have some kind of, yeah, there has to be some lift in this. There's got to be something like something. Yeah. And yeah, that, you know what, that is actually familiar. That resonates with me. Um, because that's basically how I survived depression for my entire life, just from yeah. the youngest age of being a little kid who was profoundly traumatized and depressed, but didn't have anybody to talk to about it. I would do the same thing. I would make up these little games or on this day, I, I make little bargains with myself. Um, I am super happy every other day, stuff like that. And honestly, people, and when I tell people this, they're like, Oh, you little, you're such a little trooper and stuff. And I'd be like, um, survival instinct right right there. It is called survival. And yeah, I guess I'm just lucky I was creative enough to come up with those. Yeah, those seriously. Things. But um, I still think it's, I, th- I just still think that it's something that it's not just that you do for yourself. That is something that does lift a community that lifted, you know, your students feel like part of, it helps people to let feel less helpless when you involve them in something yes, like that. Yes. And you do foster a sense of community consciously. I know that you would never do this, you know, like in any way intentionally, like I'm going to make sure that people care about me throughout this thing and that I have this support. But this is that's what happens when you create something fun and get people involved in this in sort of like a fun way. Well, and like with they the, with personally the, invested, and, yeah. and support is helpful, I think. And and with the playlist thing, I have to be completely honest. That was that was totally selfish on my part. Not about just having the music, but for me as a teacher, with with three classes that I teach in a, a distance learning environment where I've got some kids live in front of me and other kids on a screen at, at other schools. Um, that was honestly very much a classroom management thing for me was if they can be invested in what I'm doing, they're probably going to give the sub less bad of a time. So, I mean, that was, well, that's know, very, call that's it manipulative very... or whatever, but that's, that's what I was doing. It's brilliant. And the fact that you cared about the sub is, speaks really highly of you. Well, <laughs> and again, I've been a sub and it is hell. And oh, <laughs> when, yeah. when you have just a class that, knows you have no control over them and very little recourse they do they do tend to make it hard so um and again that was selfish too because you know two of these are ap classes where i need those kids they can't lose three weeks while i'm out so i need them to buy into the sub so this is this is why i'm doing it you know i think this is brilliant and i think you know i didn't intend to be able to pull any kind of particular lessons out of this but i do think it's it's it does come more naturally to some of us i think it comes very naturally to you very organically and i know that it comes quite organically to me too to involve people in our lives in a way that makes them feel invested and makes them feel um just you know part of your life they feel like they know you um i've often said this to my kids i've just you know when people are very kind to them who have never met them from online i'm like well you know your mother 
has a degree in marketing and I have hyped yeah. the hell out of you guys for years now. People feel like yeah. they know you. Yeah. Um, I always have to like take whatever credit I can get when it comes to the kids. But um, I do think there's something to this. And I think that if others could learn and understand how important it is to share your struggles with others, um, maybe not in a way where it's just constantly just, I mean, we have to be real and we're going to get to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just also in a way that's kind of like communal and dare I say fun, even at times. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that then communities come together and it's good for everyone because, you know, those kids are probably there's a lot of them who are probably feeling quite traumatized by what's going on with you because they love you. I know that you're well, very loved and very respected or they've seen the same thing with their own parents. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's triggering as hell. And that's, that's, and that's just, a, a line yeah. I try to walk with this. I, I try to walk that line all the time with students is that uh, uh, number one, my, my cancer experience has been a lot easier than a lot of other people's cancer experiences. And I know that when I'm talking about it in class, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear okay. you. Just saying the uh, fact that you can say that is is impressive because it oh, seems like it's been hell. Well, but yes, I, yes. I've spent enough time in cancer waiting rooms over 10 years yeah, to, to know where I am. Yeah. And, and 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 I have a lot of kids who first of all they're they're children. Um mm, exactly. they don't, kids. They don't necessarily have the tools to process it when a family member has cancer. And if I've got a child in my room, who has had a difficult time, it's on me to keep that a safe space for that kid. And, oh, and that's, so that's another part of making it fun or joking about it is. And also helping them to process things because I, I believe that as in, when we feel less helpless, when we feel that we can help a person um, in even a small way, even if we're just lifting their spirits, even if we're just here in some kind of, meaningful way even if it's not going to cure them that is a, an incredible coping skill that you're offering them because it really does help to process when we're just not watching a train coming at somebody we love helplessly doing literally yeah. nothing yeah. um getting involved helping to lift spirits doing something concrete in introducing music and fun and laughter is a wonderful way of processing trauma yeah. And so you've offered them, you know, you said, you know, this was purely selfish. And I see how you can think that because you're like, I needed music and whatever. But I, you've pointed out so many layers of it that you were sort of unconsciously doing it for as well. Sorry, carry on. I oh, you you know, I mean, I think that's a deep vein for us to to tap here. Let me let me finish off kind of where I am, because like to make things very succinct, Things got really bad after the brain metastases, and um, I developed. Right. Yeah, this would be in the winter, in January, February. Um, I, I developed something called leptomeningeal disease after the tumors had been hit, right. um, which, if left untreated, if and even if treated in a lot of cases, can lead to death within two to four months. So my winter was spent like that, uh, basically, you know. Yeah, preparing like for the worst. Six weeks, you're looking at a prognosis of around six weeks. Repeatedly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that that was scary sure. as hell. And then uh, just to kind of wrap the medical stuff in 
March, I think it was March, March, they went back in my brain, um, irradiated the leptomeningeal areas, um, had a lot of success with that. So at the present moment, I have no tumors that are growing in the brain and I have, you know, some residual tumor material up there. Um, but, but the tumors themselves are gone. And, um, and then the other metastases I had around the body in my thumb and in my leg and in my butt cheeks and in my lungs, um, we switched therapies in April and the therapy that I'm on is the first one in 11 years that's actually produced statistic, statistically significant shrinkage of the tumors. So I'm in a really good place right now, which is the only reason I'm even able to uh, marginally talk about things with you because yeah. uh, mm. back in January, February, this is not a discussion I could have had. All right. I want to get on to um, talking about your new project which is very exciting. But before we get to that, I just wanted to circle back to something we talked about earlier, because I think it's so important. Um, you talked about how being real um, can actually get confusing for people. And sometimes people want to make you into some kind of brand. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a perfect, perfect way of phrasing it. And uh, in fact, I, I stole that from an actual experience that you had where somebody said you were being off brand. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it, last winter in the, uh, in the winter of my discontent, when it looked like the, uh, looked like the uh, fourth quarter clock was running out on life, um, I had, had I posted something on Facebook that was uh, kind of about I'm not in a great place right now and things are not going well and I'm really scared and I'm, I'm not okay. And it was, to me, it wasn't that much different from anything else that I've shared on social media or shared with friends over the years. Um, it was, it was me trying to be honest about what this journey is like, about what this, this thing that's going to affect 50% of us at some point in our lives is like, which is kind of, kind of how I've seen my mission uh, throughout right. my experience with cancer. Right. Um, and then I, I had a, a talk with, with an old friend um, and this person put it to me as, um, you know, folks are kind of upset with what you're, uh, what you're putting out there right now. Cause it's, uh, it's really not in keeping with your brand. And, I was, at, at the time it made sense in the context of the conversation, but the more I thought about it, the stranger it was that I had a brand. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> on top of all of your, on top of all of what you're going through now, you're responsible for being the patron saint of positive cancer. Right. And that was, and, <laughs> it, and that's exactly it was this, this idea that, that, and, and I don't fault, I don't fault people for this because, you know, you're a communications person, Kirsty, and, and I come from a background in communications and, you know, there are, there's a difference between received message and transmitted message. And mm -hmm. if, if you're transmitting something that people are reading a certain way, 
it's not always entirely their fault that they're hearing it a certain way. And I could, what I, what I guess I got out of that was I understood how people thought I had been a patron saint of positivity or whatever, because the, the style my family intentionally chose 11 years ago in what we were doing was to, we're going to meet this head on. And sometimes that is going to look like positivity because it's controlling the things we can control and trying to, to meet it head on. But right. other, other times that is going to look like fear and it's going to look like despair. And, and that's just, that's life, right? It's not, right. it's not being negative. I, I hope I'm never a, uh, a patron saint for negativity. Um, no, it's safe to it's, say I don't think you have that in you. But <laughs> oh, I don't know. You should hear me talk about the Cleveland Browns. I, I can, I can, I can be negative. <laughs> we are all a great many things. <laughs> yeah, we we contain multitudes, right? Um, but but yeah, I, it was just it was a strange thing where I had yes, I had always tried to be positive and head on with things, but I didn't see that as being the only thing I was, and and I guess that's when I learned oh, that is the only thing I am to some folks is a cheerleader. Not, oh. not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but I didn't realize that's where I was. Well, I mean, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that for other people, but for you, that makes an incredibly, that's incredibly devastating, frankly. I mean, not to, yeah. be, seen, not to be seen and accepted as a whole person for whom people are willing to hold space and just let you be what, you know, accept the experience you're going through and be on your team, come what may. Um, That is so, that must've been so devastating. And and that was the thing in the weeks after when I kind of tried to look at this from 25,000 feet and separate myself from the emotion of the moment, um, separating myself from it actually made it seem more screwed up Right. Did from my own from my own point of view. It's funny how that is, isn't it? Sometimes we oh, yeah. yeah, it's funny because that can go either way, looking at things from a distance. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, Sometimes we can be like, it's... Wow, you were really overreacting there, but right. or you can be like, Wow, that yes. was completely out of pocket and I should have shut it down right in that moment. Yes. It and was... ninety ninety percent of the time when I when I can separate myself from a situation. I typically find I was the issue here. That did so, dude, yes. Calm absolutely. down, dude. You you are way way out just, of line on this. Just chill. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. No, in this case, that was incredibly out of pocket and just. And and this is you know this is what I want to sort of really. Um, I think this is a gift. You know, when you posted that Facebook post, I found it to be incredibly helpful. I was so grateful for it because I was like, this guy is telling it how it is. And he's also kind enough to tell us all what he needs in no uncertain terms. You know, you were like, please don't say you got this and you're going to, you know, because it negates what I'm going through and it doesn't validate the pain and, and, and anguish that I'm experiencing. And I need support for what is real. And I was so grateful for that, even though I was guilty of, and again, you, 
you really nailed it when you said people hear things from the lens of and sort of translate things, you know, impact versus intent is very much affected by people's own experiences. And, you know, and, and I think because you have beaten the odds over and over again, it can be, um, it's easy for people to start to see you as some kind of superhero or faith over facts. And I mean, honestly, that was, you know, to use the expression that that person used, that was a brand, this, you know, Captain America kind of thing. Right. And that was something you would just, I mean, that was just a fun thing for you. That wasn't your identity and you never intended it to be. But it's interesting because I had been like, you got this just because, Honestly, you don't know what to say. And I couldn't accept anything else personally at the time. Um, And I, when you came and said, that's not helpful. I was like, it didn't make me feel defensive. I just felt grateful. I'm like, here's somebody who's just laying it out there. Because so often when people are going through difficult things, unthinkable things, people's heart desperately goes out to them and they uh, and people will not even respond because they don't want to say the wrong thing and they want to be supportive and you were out there going hey team this is what I need here's what's real here's how I'm feeling and this is what I need and what I don't need and I was like this is chef's kiss perfection so to me this was like if you had a brand (laughs) this was the most on-brand thing you've ever done because it was like, you know, you see yourself as guide, as your, your mission is guiding people through the experience. And this was just so perfect as far as I was concerned. So it's interesting how that had different effects on different people. Because I was like very, very grateful and just like, what? I don't know. All I can what? say is just grateful and just blown away I... by the generosity in doing that. I appreciate that so much. I, I can't even tell you how much. Um, because that's, I, I, one of the, what, we, we did, you know, and again, we intentionally did this. We intentionally made the superhero thing part of, part of what we did because when I was diagnosed, our kids were extremely young and, right. and that was a great way to explain it to them and try to get control over the things we had control over. Um, what's, so one of the things that you hear a lot of times when you're, you're in something, and and I know you know this because you've been through it too, and you've had people tell you you're so strong Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sometimes you, you have, you know, good people don't, do not get me wrong here. Good people who are, are going to say, you know, this is this is God's favor on you. And, and, and to be, to be clear, I, I do feel God's favor on me, but I think there's a side to that that can be kind of toxic to some degree. And, and I was, I was actually just having this conversation with somebody the other day that like, I know like one of the, most faith-filled men I've ever known in my life died in seven months of cancer. And for somebody to say to a person like me, you know, well, this is, 
this is proof of your faith. Your faith is getting through this. Mm. When, when I know my faith doesn't hold a candle to his mm. and, and he was, he was gone in less than a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, it almost, I, I appreciate the sentiment. I know people don't mean it the way it comes across. I appreciate the sentiment of it, but it, to me, in my mind, it disrespects so many incredibly strong, incredibly faith-filled people who died of this and they didn't die of it because they were weak and they mm. didn't die of it because they didn't believe enough. They <laughs> died of it because it was cancer. And right. my, my, my dear, dear friend, Vince Carreri says so often that the further, the further you get in life, the more you realize how much it was being lucky instead of being good. And <laughs> I very, very much feel that way about my cancer is that I've just been lucky. Um, yes, I do believe that, that I've been blessed. I absolutely believe I've been blessed and every day to me is a blessing. Right. Um, but in no way do I think that when cancer gets you, it's because you weren't strong enough or you weren't good enough or you weren't faithful enough. And, and I think that's, that's something that I think a lot of folks kind of need to hear. And I think, and on the other side, I just think it's, it puts so much additional pressure and trauma on a person who's just fighting to get through the day and who is having moments where they're not feeling blessed. They're not feeling faithful. They're, they're questioning everything. Yeah, absolutely. And they're not allowed to just have that. They're not allowed, you know, they have to, if you're holding up somebody as a brand, or expecting them to act a certain way, they cease to become, you're you dehumanizing them. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an incredibly cruel thing to do under any circumstances. But the burden of that on top of everything you're going through can really break the camel's back, I, I would imagine. You know, yeah. you can't just be real and say, people, I need you. Team, I need you. I am not okay None yeah. of this is okay. It doesn't make sense. And I think for me, the way I see things spiritually is that, yes, you can feel the love, the support, and the grace of the universe holding you up under all circumstances. Yes. And it still isn't, you know, a matter of, oh, if I really tap into that, I'm going to be cured. That's just, like you say, that's just not how these things work. Yeah. And so, you know, you can be deeply faithful and deeply grateful for how it holds you up and supports you and opens doors and what have you and, you know, gathers the right people in your team and what have you. But at the same time, it, it has no impact. You know, atheists die at the same rate of, from cancer as, you know, yeah. priests do. There is no yeah. difference. There, <laughs> yeah. so, so I just think it's like, it's so cruel and dehumanizing, to, even if you have the best of intentions and you're trying to, you know, you're, you're like bolster, you're trying to like boost somebody's confidence or tell them you're our hero and you got this. It's, it's just too much pressure. Yeah. It's just too damn much. And it's adding a, a burden and, that is just unthinkable. And it's, something, and it's something that I think happens to people who put themselves out there, whether we're talking about mm-hmm. cancer or paraplegia or sexual assault or exactly. anything else. It, exactly. It, this happens to lots of people. I've I felt the same pressure. Um, and it gets in your head, you know, it's like, 
I've, I've felt this that, you know, when I was being able to be, you know, there's been times that I've been able to be very positive about bad things that have happened to me and find the lessons in them and what have you. And I've been open about that and honest about that. And, and people like that part. Right. And then when I, I'm not able to access that and I have to process things and, and recognize how difficult they are and I'm in a darker space and people don't like that. It gets yeah. in your head and I'm yeah. suddenly like, I'm not coping well now. Right. I'm not, I'm not valuable. I'm not right. acceptable. And it, and it just like it, that shame stuff is just too much. So we've got to be careful about how we support people and stop putting them on pedestals and yes. stop. And please never refer to somebody's brand. I mean, people are yeah. not commodities. That's not. We should not do that. I know it's a it's a buzzword, and a lot of people talk about their own brand. But when it comes to somebody's attitude during a trial, that's not. <laughs> let's yeah. not, let's yeah. take that out and throw it away, and then burn that. Um, that's not good. So I really appreciate you telling us. You know that your experience with that and always keeping it real, you know, um, the fact that you're a positive guy, just by nature, you're just a positive guy and you've, you're so lucky to be one. I mean, I think think that's genetically encoded a lot of, a lot of the time and it's your personality and you work hard at it. Um, You do work hard at, at seeing the light and, and being the best you can be, but, just because you're a positive guy doesn't mean you have to be positive all the time. <laughs> right. Great many things. <laughs> right. So I really appreciate that. All right. Now on to something else. Um, well, and, and on to oh. something, honestly, that, that I think dovetails really well into what we were just talking about. And that's oh, how it. so? <laughs> so, so we, you know, we were just talking about how, how people, people take folks and put them on a pedestal sometimes mm. and, and it ends up being kind of this unreal, this unreal thing for, uh, for both sides, right? That yes. you make somebody into a hero without flaws, without bad days. And that's, that's not just unrealistic for the person who's being perceived that way. It's also unrealistic for any of us to believe that, anybody is that way and right. if we're about to talk about the world war ii project i think yes, that's we something are. we're really guilty of um when it comes when it comes to the world war ii generation all right well we are um so i love the segue because um i am so excited about this project i am completely blown away just by the logistics of it the fact that during all of this, <laughs> like this broad, I'm, I'm gesturing wildly, like all of it, the, the being a teacher, a dad during a pandemic, fighting cancer on every front, um, just all of it. Somehow this man has written not just a book, but a series of books. And, um, and I would argue it's, it's because of gestures wildly all of this that i did <laughs> you're just you're just uh, in addition to all your other wonderful traits you're incredibly humble um i know that in your shoes i i would feel really good about just staying alive and, and looking at tiktok all day 
uh, because that's basically what I do when I'm even a little bit off. So I allow me to be in awe of this amazing accomplishment you have put together. You've had this passion project, but this thing, you got to break it down. Yeah. You've got so, to break it down because so it's fascinating. I just told uh, yesterday I was talking to a, uh, my, my freshman history teacher from high school, from 1989, who's a, a broadcaster in Toledo now. And I, I told him, if, if I've talked to 30 different people about the genesis of this project, I've probably told the story 30 different ways. Because I, my feeling is most people, when they sit down to write a book, they, they kind of have an idea in the back of their head and there is a specific moment where they can say, that's when I decided to write the book. And I don't have that moment. Mm -hmm. um, what I have are a lot of moments that kind of put me in that direction. And it's almost like one day I found myself on chapter five and it was like, oh, oh shit, I'm writing a book. Uh, like, <laughs> so, awesome. uh, so, so yeah, this, this project um, is, is being published as, as five books by the University of Toledo Press, uh, a series called Toledo's War. Um, and this started out of a, a class that I teach in TPS. And the, the class is a, a one semester elective on the Second World War. And it's built around a, a project called the Fallen Hero Project, which I uh, absolutely stole from National History Day, which uh, had done this as, as part of their Sacrifice Freedom Institute. And it's a, it's a project where you, you assigned every kid one person who was killed in the Second World War. And my twist on it was I'm assigning each kid one person killed from the Second World War from Toledo. So we started this project back in 2012, um, got the class approved for the 2013 year, and each kid has to write this, this paper about one person from Toledo. Well, it's not like there's a book about each person from Toledo. So, and there's, there's lots of different levels of information about a person who was killed in the war. So for instance, um, there was a, uh, a Toledo judge's son who was uh, in an infantry division in Normandy. Uh, when he got killed, it was front page news and there were five different stories about it. Um, another guy from town uh, by the name of Jake Chandler, who was a Toledo police officer who also happened to be black, um, mm -hmm. there was barely a smidge about Chandler in the newspapers. So I, it, the racial disparity is just one. There are lots of other class disparities in, in whose death was newsworthy and whose death was not. So, kind of like now, right? Exactly like now. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Here we are 80 years later. Same stuff, different day. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to grade each kid's project fairly, when you've got this vast disparity in information availability, um, I had to do each one of their projects beforehand. So when I assigned these first projects, I, I came up with a list of guys that I was going to assign to the students, went to the downtown library in Toledo, researched each one of the guys, um, and basically told the kids, if you can't find in a semester what I found in a half hour on your guys, when I'm going to tell you exactly where to look, that's what I'm grading you against. It's not about how detailed you're is your guy is because some of you are going to find vast troves of information and it's going to be easy and your paper should be five pages long. And some of you are going to fight really hard to find out anything. 
and your paper might be a page and a half, and that's okay because you work just as hard to get that page and a half as somebody else did to get five or six. That's so, so awesome. I love yeah. it. Yeah, and, and for me, I'm, I'm, I have a deep-seated interest in the Second World War because my grandfather's generation and my family, they, they all participated in the war, jet, war effort in one right. way or another. Um, right. So I, I was having a ball doing this research that, that I was going to grade the kids against, and I started realizing, like, just when I was maybe even 50 into the 1,100 Toledoans who were killed in the war, I started realizing you could tell the entire story of the war out of just the men from Toledo, the men and two women who, who died in the war. And then, you know, I was kind of chugging along with that, and it started kind of gnawing at the back of my head that the same sources I used in the local history room that gave me the stories of the dead had about eight times as many stories of the people who lived. And so I started thinking, you know, I need to scour through those and see if there's any other really good stories. And so I started going through those. I'd, I'd go over to the, the main library after work, spend an hour there, come home. And I, I started realizing that there's so much. So then I kind of realized, well, this isn't even giving me everything. But if I went back and read every day's newspaper, I'd get the whole story. So Oh, just that? Just every day's newspaper? I, well, I gotta read something <laughs> before I go to bed. So I'd sit there with the iPad in bed and read. I started with, uh, uh, it would have been the fall of 1932 when Hitler took power in Germany. And I just decided to see how did, how did Toledo newspapers cover the rise of Hitler? What did people in Toledo know about the rise of Hitler? And uh, so then I've read through 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. We start getting to the Anschluss with Austria. 39, we get to war. And then I realized I'm going to read every paper from the war era. So I, I read, I took notes, I took screenshots of all the stuff I was reading. Still not thinking I was going to write a book. Just kind of gleaning stuff to use in class. Wow. And then it was it was right before covid um i as i as i talked about before you know i had this this experience where in the fall of 18 my dad passed away i had radiation my cancer was progressing and i had learned all of this stuff about toledo in the second world war and and also by that time i had interviewed uh probably five veterans um living veterans about their experiences in Wow. In Toledo as kids during the Depression, how that shaped them, wh- where they went to war, what it was like when they came home. And I had all this material, and I remember saying to somebody, and I can't even remember who it was at this point, I remember saying, you know what's ridiculous is I'm going to die, and I probably know more about the Second World War in Toledo than anybody else alive, and all that stuff's going to go in the ground with me. And it was about then that I started realizing you probably could write this book. You need to start writing this stuff down. And awesome. it didn't wow. really start as like thinking I'm going to get a book contract. It was, it was me just writing down everything I knew, trying to get these, these interviews that I'd recorded on a, several different formats and written down in different notebooks, like start getting this stuff together so it'll survive past you. And, and then it was, it really was when I was, about five chapters worth of stuff I had written and they're not five chapters that are in the book now 
but that was when I started realizing there really is a book here and it's different um, from a lot of city histories of World War II. So, um, and, and, and how, I hate it. And how so? I hate if I'm going too deep in the weeds here, but um, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of cities around the United States, and I had, I had read these in the past, like there's, there's one about Cleveland that's, it's a great book, but, but what it is, is it's the story of maybe seven big heroes from Cleveland. Here's this guy who won the Medal of Honor. And here's this guy who died at Pearl Harbor. And, you know, and then maybe there's a, a token woman and a token black person. Um, and, and maybe some kind of story about uh, the big industry that was in Cleveland at that time, like White Motors or something. Right. And, and it tells kind of a highlight real story of Cleveland right. in World War II, but it doesn't tell the entire story of Cleveland in World War II. And so, so what I kind of set out to do without even knowing it was what if I told the entire story of World War II specifically through the experience of Toledo, Ohio and how Toledoans were involved, especially since Toledo had a huge Polish population, a huge German population, uh, a sizable Italian uh, community, uh, Romanians, Czechoslovakians. These were people who were at, at ground zero of the European war. Right. Um, that, that this war got covered in a lot greater detail in Toledo than it might have in, say, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, didn't have as large an Eastern European community. So um, it, it, it just kind of, it kind of organically grew into this project of, of writing a book about the entire Second World War, but writing it specifically through how Toledoans got information about the war, how they contributed to the war effort in different ways, um, how they were affected by the war effort. And so what I ended up writing wasn't necessarily the military history that the stories of the 1100 dead are, um, although it does have that military history, it also has a lot of social history about how the, the influx of African-American workers in the 20s, 30s, and then ramping up into the war, how that transformed the city, how more Mexican workers came into the city at that time the changing role of women in the workplace and home. And it, it, it ends up being more of a story about this transformation of the city by, by people from the city and how the world events kind of uh, dovetailed back into that. And I think this is so valuable because when we look at war from just a military standpoint, it's just this so one-dimensional and it doesn't tell us anything about what war does to people, how it shapes history yes and how it shapes generations and how people behave to this day oh um, yeah their habits their attitudes um how it's it might even be impacting us heading into similar situation absolutely yeah and i think that's what you know we always say if we don't know history we're bound to repeat it and i think knowing it on such a Pers sort of a personal and human level if only we could learn history in the way that you're writing it for everything what a difference that might make to our attitudes and, and the way we you know want to you know we try to prevent these things from happening again or how we see each other one, and tolerate the, each other or appreciate each other one of the greatest professors i had in the history program at, at bgsu my my bachelor's degree was in history um, and then I worked in journalism for a while, and then I, I came back for my education degree. So I'm, 
I, I'm a historian by training on this. Right. Um, but the greatest, one of the greatest history props I had was uh, Dr. Ed Danzinger at BGSU. And Dr. Danzinger gave this talk, his, his last lecture at BGSU uh, back, uh, you know, I'm going to screw up the date if I say it, but for argument's sake, let's say it was about seven or eight years ago now. And um, Dr. Danzinger had this, this gorgeous quote about how people who don't know their history don't know themselves. And, mm. and it wasn't just a, those who don't know it are doomed to repeat it. It was, we, we can't know ourselves if we don't know our nation's history. Mm. And how, how do we as individuals even move forward if we don't understand the forces that brought us to where we are, uh, much less as a nation or a, a society or a planet. And uh, he, I, I gave Dr. Danzinger the last word in my book is that the, the good version of that quote um, is, is what closes out the book or, or the books, plural. Um, but I, I just, I firmly believe what he said. And, and that's mm. military history is vitally important. Um, but military history is a lot more than battles and tanks and planes and ships. It's, right. it's people who were, right. who were real people who were multidimensional, peevish, who had biases, um, and who were capable of great good and great evil, just just like any one of us. Today, yeah, just exactly like we are. And, and uh, you know, that's the thing. Again, putting pe- coming back to how you segued into this, putting people on pedestals without allowing them to be fully human is so problematic for everybody. Yeah. Um, and... Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I sure. I you know, um, in the United States, we uh, back in the '90s, Tom Brokaw uh, wrote his book about the Greatest Generation, and it, it very much put those the, the World War II folks uh, on this pedestal. All of them, not just the uh, the generals and admirals. And, and and if there's a good thing that Brokaw contributed, it was he really did look at the the stories of regular people, not the not the folks with stars on their shoulders. Um, but, but I think he also did us a disservice because, um, and, and again, maybe it wasn't what he intended. Maybe it's what people heard. But we, we started looking at that entire generation at where everybody was an absolute hero, where they were all flawless. And you saw this during, uh, oh gosh, during the war on terror, uh, you mm. saw it from some really toxic veterans groups that were, uh, the older fellas, the, the kind of boomer generation ones talking about how the millennials, you know, they, they, they did X, Y, and Z and they didn't, they didn't experience a real war. And, Oh, they're complaining about the it's fact that the, that the defect uh, doesn't have fried chicken when, when these men ate out of it. And, and I remember at the time, even before I was <laughs> hip deep in this project, just thinking, are you kidding me right now? These these were regular people, and I I have read enough of their letters and diaries to know they did complain about the food nonstop, and they complained about the fact that there weren't girls. And I I think back to my own great uncle's letters back, where the letters that he wrote to my great grandmother were the choir boy at war. And the letters that he wrote back to his brothers were like, hey, listen, if this girl asks about me, don't let her know that I'm writing letters to this girl. They were, they were no different than us. And to me, that, that makes them more heroic. Looking exactly. back and saying, these guys beat fascism. 
and they were a bunch of dopes just like just like us they 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 weren't imbued with some superhuman heroism they were just as scared and confused and homesick as any of us could be yes (laughs) yeah that does to me that that makes them so much more heroic because yeah you know they're they're us and that's relatable if you go if you were to go out there just as you are now that's exactly how it would feel yeah <laughs> that's what they did yes so, yeah it is a disservice to everybody i mean i know it's supposed to be honoring them and venerating them but ultimately you know when you look at it holistically like that it is it's like they weren't they weren't special and they they had to be brave and they did they were and they did it they rose to the occasion which is that's inspiring and 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 here's the optimist in me if we're going to talk about toxic optimism i i'm optimistic that if the same threat raises its head to the same level that it did then I do have faith that people will rise to the challenge. I, I do have faith that people Yeah, they're will not say, just going to suddenly not. <laughs> yeah. People we're not, always We're have. not going to stand for fascism. We're not going to stand for book burning. We're not going to stand for concentration camps. I, I, I really do believe that, that every generation is up to this challenge because we have to be. We have to be. Uh, and I just, I think that if we understood our history and we understood what these people fought for and exactly what it was about. And if we, you know, learned it in these holistic and sort of relatable ways, the way that you framed the series, can you imagine how much less likely we would be as a society oh. right not to be falling for these fascists? Yeah. Like this, uh, the playbook the, is identical. Oh, yeah. it, it's literally the same playbook. You look at Bolsonaro down in Brazil right now, it's, it's the same <laughs> stuff. And Yeah. And people just don't understand. And that's, I'm like, they're just, they've been weaponized by, by yeah. cynical folks. And because they don't understand history and they don't see the signs, they, um, they've been weaponized and it's yeah. tragic. Yep. So I think, you know, and if we would make history holistic and relate this and available to it would it would change everything. So this is just, I applaud you so wholeheartedly on on taking on such a behemoth of a project. I mean, to think that you had to, oh, just this is going to make me sound like a it's going to make me sound like a masochist, but it's it's the most fun I've ever had in my life. Well, you must on, be a masochist, but I just am so grateful that there are people like you who are, <laughs> because wow, that is an incredible incredible undertaking and the fact that you did it in conjunction with everything else is absolutely mind-blowing and do take credit for that you know I mean your survival instincts maybe kicked in and you were looking for a distraction but the fact is is that you could have found it in something a lot less worthwhile um, so we're so grateful and and truly this is something to be so proud of I cannot wait for it um, when is it when is it going to be available? When can we pre-order? So, um, everybody, cross your fingers, your toes, your kidneys, uh, your, <laughs> All of your sinuses, uh, and <laughs> knock on some wood. Uh, we we believe it's going to be out late this fall, and hopefully out in time for Christmas. Oh, brilliant! Because that's going to be a wonderful gift for people. I hope so. And a wonderful gift for you. Oh. That's, um, I- I, I, all I want to do is hold it. I, I, want, I just want to hold that book in my arms. All you want for Christmas is your five, your five book yes. series in your arms, and you will. 
You will. I'm so glad to know that you are are again uh, beating the odds that the latest treatment you're on is working so well. Um, and we're going to just keep rooting for you that it continues to do that. Um, but man, once the minute, the very nanosecond that this thing becomes available for pre-order, will you please let us all oh. know? Yeah, there's because there's a, there's a chance you'll hear me screaming from across town. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, pre-orders are super important for authors and for creating um, the ability for people. You know, it gets them higher in search engines and stuff. So if we can support our friend Joe and his family and his incredible effort and all the people that are going to benefit from this wonderful. Um, and, and incredibly I would say, relevant look into history. Yes. It's very good for the consumer too, because the pre-orders are going to be at a, a significant markdown from, from sticker price. Precisely. So um, don't hesitate to pre-order. I cannot emphasize enough how important that is for authors. And I know that if you're listening, you are very likely going to be a friend, a supporter, a fan um, of Joe and or of me and <laughs> a friend of mine and I, I nothing would make me happier than to see this book really take off i so, appreciate that so much so yeah it's so worthwhile we need it we need it desperately the timing of it is impeccable um so so grateful and so grateful that i got to talk to you again we had to do yes. this in two parts due to um some some issues but i'm so thankful that you took the time out of your schedule twice the second half we were accompanied by um the dulcet tones of cicadas yes or are they locusts but you know i hope you can enjoy the the midwestern summer evening um it makes it all very much more authentic um but yeah joe you're the best oh i feel the same way about you we wish you all the luck. Your family's the best. We're so grateful to all of you for all that you do for our community. Um, and just wish you nothing but, but good things for a very, very long time to come. So thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Kiersey. And thanks to all you folks who have listened to this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everybody. And we will talk again. I'm certain of it. For sure. Yeah. All right. Have a great one. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye.